Okay, well, one of the most prized artistic treasures in the Smithsonian American Art Museum uh, was created by a janitor. If that picture is, uh, will come up on the screen in just a moment. Uh, the creator of this work of art um, was James Hampton, James Hampton, an African-American uh, who was virtually unknown during his lifetime. He was janitor. Uh, the work of art was called The Throne of the Third Heaven. It has been called America's greatest visionary work of art, and it is made entirely out of junk. Um, it, is, it is a recreation of God's throne room. Uh, depicted in the book of Revelation. The work sparkles in gold and silver with a throne and then with altars and mercy seats and other sacred objects. But here's, here's the rub. It consists entirely of discarded objects. Old furniture, cigarette boxes, wine bottles, garbage paper, uh, cardboard paper, construction cylinders, and then covered with gold and aluminum foil. Over the course of 14 years, he gathered up these objects from garbage bins and from second-hand stores, gathering them all together. We really don't know very much about James Hampton, but in the garage where he labored on this masterpiece, he had one Bible verse. It was from the book of Proverbs, and it was this, where there is no vision the people perish. And here was a man of faith who in his spare time wanted to give people a vision of God's glory. And in the first verse, um, in this first verse, uh, and that's where Psalm 15 comes in. Psalm 115 comes in. Where in this very first verse, Two times the author comes back to this idea, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Did you know that glory is one of the most common praise words in Scripture? I guess you know that. And the Hebrew word for this, um, this word glory is kabod. And I want you to remember that word, kabod, because it can mean many other things in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it means uh, things like honor, majesty, goodness, importance, weight, or, or sometimes it means just heaviness. That word kabod, it can mean a whole bunch of things. And maybe the connection is that the glory of God is the weight or the heaviness of all that God is. And when Moses prayed in the book of Exodus, he wanted to see God's glory. God told him, well, you're not going to see my face. You're only going to see my back. And I expect that the reason for many of you being here today is that you want to get a glimpse of God's glory. Just like Moses prayed. Lord, show me your glory. Maybe you're praying for God's glory. And that you want to see something more of the weight of God's glory today. It's a good thing to pray. Lord, I want to see your glory today. 
You know, too, from Scripture that uh, in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the kabod, the glory of God. And, and what is easy for trees and mountains to do is, is harder, actually, for us to do. Um, because Romans 3.23 says, um, In our bent towards our own self-glory, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so our heart is in constant need of a spiritual reorientation that says, like in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Well, what are we here for today? Why are we here? Almost 400 years ago, Scottish and English theologians met together and put a catechism together, a West, what's called the Westminster Catechism, a teaching of tools for questions and answers. And their very first question is, um, is this, what is the chief end of man? What is the main purpose of what we're here for? And the answer is, man's, human's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. What is our chief purpose? And he wrote it like this in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's our purpose, right? That's, that's what we're here for. Do it all for God's glory. Do everything with your eyes set on giving him praise. So we proclaim God's glory. We proclaim it just like the, the heavens declare the glory of God. We experience God's glory and we can live to God's glory. And we learn more about God's glory in the book of First Samuel. In chapter 4, if, keep your finger there in, in uh, Psalm 115, but if you do want to look back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, um, we're going to read, and I'm just going to track a little bit through the story of what goes on here as we want to follow through about God's glory. 1 Samuel chapter 4, the people of Israel find themselves fighting their rival the Philistines. And very early in the chapter, we read that, that Israel was defeated by their enemy, once again, the Philistines. The defeat is reported rather simply. And as a follow-up question, the people of Israel, they start asking, why did we lose this battle? Um, why did those Philistines beat us? And they do not attribute their loss to poor military strategy. They don't say, oh, we had our men placed in the wrong place and we should have had some other men here or there. There's nothing spoken about about military strategy. They seriously question, though, why God brought the defeat upon them. They recognize this. They did not have the Ark of the Covenant with them. And the solution is, so they're, they're thinking it all through and the solution for them is that they need to mobilize the Ark of the Covenant and to have it near them for the very next battle. Come on, you know uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and, uh, 
and and they're carrying the storyline with them that the ark is power and uh and if you've uh, tracked with that movie they say the ark is the transmitter to god if we have this ark it's power that we have so they bring the ark and they get it with them as they prepare for the next battle. Do you remember what's inside this box, this golden box, this this Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember what's inside there? So what's inside there? The tablets, the tablets for uh, the Ten Commandments, they were placed inside of the Ark. Uh, Aaron's rod was placed inside that Ark as well. And then the showbread uh, that was there as well the gold jar of manna. And more importantly, though, this ark was the symbol of God's presence with the people. And the suggestion was, well, they were defeated because they didn't have the ark with them. And then notice in verse 5, the ark came into their presence. And when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, All Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. So now Israel has newfound enthusiasm, don't they? Now they're ready to do battle with the Philistines one more time. And the storyteller lets us in also on the terror of the Philistines. If you were to even read down a few verses further, the Philistines shouted, a God has come into the camp. We're in trouble. And even the Philistines are aware of this strange power of God with this Ark of the Covenant and with the enemy. But they resolve to fight as best they can. And the Philistines win a second time. The Philistines defeat them even though they had the Ark of the Covenant with them. Now, even the Ark cannot rescue them from their enemy. Not only is this a defeat, but this is also a profound theological crisis for the people of Israel. And on that day, what else happens? If you're tracking with that story, you know what else happens. The prophet Eli dies on that same day and he hears about the death of his sons but the message comes to him that his sons die and he really doesn't flinch hearing about his son's death but when he hears that the ark of the covenant is captured that is when he dies it's it's not the impact of his son's death but it's the capture of the ark of the covenant The end has come. Prophet Eli is dead. The old order has failed. However, there is even more tragedy that you'll read about in those verses. The daughter-in-law of Eli is pregnant. We do not know this mother's name. And at the time of hearing the tragic news of this loss in battle, the capture of the ark and that her father-in-law and that her husband were dead, she gives birth to a child. And after naming her son, she dies. And the name that she gave to her son, do you remember what it was? The name of the son, do you remember what it was? The name was Ichabod. Now, 
Do you remember what I said, what that word glory is in Hebrew? Kabod. And now she gives this name Ichabod, which means no glory. 1 Samuel 4.21, no glory. Or the question is, where is the glory? The glory, the life force of Israel is gone. God is absent. Israel has lost. And Israel has no framework for making any sense of what is next. The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. All they can see is that the Lord God and the ark are weak and that the Philistines, along with their god Dagon, are strong and they have prevailed. In victory now, what do the Philistines do? They take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it in their own temple right beside their God to show that Dagon is Lord over Israel's God with the Ark of the Covenant there. The Philistines do not understand that a God like Dagon, who is a graven image, is no match for the living God. Now flip back to Psalm 115. Look back Uh, There, verses 4 to 7. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. So in the first morning after the capture of the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple of Dagon, they find Dagon face down before the Ark with his head and his arms broken off. Dagon is now without a head for thinking and without hands for acting. But the Philistines don't think anything of it. They just prop up their god again, Dagon, only to be toppled down again the next day. Take note that the ark may be captured, but the glory of God is not fully departed. In Psalm 115, verse 2, the writer of the Psalms asks, why do the nations say, where is their God? But I think also, It's not just the nations, but it's also the people of God that ask that question. The question is Ichabod. It's, where is the glory? There's no glory here. Where is the glory? Do you find it that it's not just outside of the church that people have questions, but it's inside the church that people have questions saying, where is our God? I'm struggling to understand that. And you may find yourself at a place where you cannot make sense of what is happening in your life. Whether it's illness, whether it's conflict, whether it's loneliness, whether it's a theological crisis, and you ask, where is God's glory in this? Or you may look at our church in the culture around us 
And you feel like the impact of the church is more sidelined. And God's people are feeling insignificant among the powers of the world. And you ask, where is God's glory? Well, after this, the Philistines are afflicted with illness that they might, uh, that really they, they experience illness that might be compared to the plague that came upon the Egyptians. And the Lord's hand was heavy upon the Philistines. If you read that part of the story um, later in 1 Samuel chapter 5, uh, the Lord's hand was heavy on them. And remember that that word kabod can mean heavy or glory. And so that author is playing with that word that God's hand was heavy on them. And then in chapter 6, the Philistines are so stressed out. They're ill. They're stressed out by the presence of the Ark of the Covenant in their presence. And the only thing that they can do is send it back to the people of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 6, 5, what's interesting is that they return the Ark of the Covenant to its proper home and they offer gifts with the desire that they might give glory to the God of Israel. What a reversal. Now the Philistines are giving glory to Israel's God. Think ahead to the life of Jesus. Even as Jesus was getting ready for the cross, he was anticipating his glory. It's a strange mix, isn't it? Jesus preparing for the cross, but seeing also the glory that was there. The story of the cross tells us that God is ready to work newness with every seeming defeat. And God's power is made perfect in weakness. He longs for you to experience his glory and to give him glory, whatever your circumstances are today. Psalm 115, verse 3, we read, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. An idol is a safe thing, isn't it? An idol doesn't talk back. An idol doesn't put expectations upon you. An idol is safe. But the invisible God is holy. The invisible God is passionate and loving and dangerous. God is sovereign. I think that's really what it is with verse 3. He does whatever pleases him. He does what he chooses. He is not tame. In the words of Mr. Beaver speaking to the children of Narnia, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. And in the words of Scripture, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. He is not one to be tamed or controlled. This is our God of glory. Psalm 115 is a psalm that calls us to worship the God of heaven and earth, the one who does whatever he pleases. And the author is very well aware that worship can be directed elsewhere. Worship can be directed elsewhere because really everybody worships. It's not just us here. 
gathered here on Sunday morning, every person in the GTA, every person on this planet is worshiping something or somebody. Everybody worships. The only choice that we have is what will we worship? The question isn't whether you will love something, but what you will love. We're all worshipers because all of us worships something. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really is your God. Do you know we have a, uh, a Bob Dylan lover in our midst? <laughs> it's one of our pastors here. Um, but anyway, I was thinking of this, and I was thinking of that one song where Bob Dylan, in his Christian days, where he was expressing songs from a Christian perspective, he sang out these words that I think are very true. You got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Worship happens, doesn't it? Whenever we intentionally cherish God and value him above all else. So I realize that worship is more than what happens here on Sunday morning. But as we gather here right now, in our leadership, we want to create an atmosphere for meaningful worship. We aim for a thematic alignment. Did you notice that with the praise songs that we were singing today as, as Job selected that, that old hymn, To God Be the Glory? We aim for a, a well-run service. We, we aim for um, flow and movement that moves in a wonderful way. But you know that there is something that we cannot program. And what we cannot program is you meeting with God today. Where you are praying in your heart and you are saying, more than anything else, I want to see God's holiness today. And I want to hear his voice. Because what we're doing here is that we're training ourselves in worship. We're training ourselves in this this habit of faith. We, we train ourselves in this pursuit of godliness where, where Paul says, train yourself to be godly and that this act right now is one part of it where, where we're saying, I am engaging and I am giving God the best of my mind right now. I am giving God the very best of my heart and I am offering it before him as a sacrifice you know, a month ago, we experienced what was called the journey to glory. I read that in newspaper articles. What was the journey to glory that we experienced one month ago? It was for our beloved Toronto Raptors. And that is what was written in newspaper articles. The journey to glory. I listened to a radio program that talked about, and get this, the difference between a sports fan, and a super fan. And they were trying to distinguish the difference between what is just a regular Toronto Raptors fan and what is a super fan. And so they interviewed one person on the radio who said this. He said that he sets aside 
an average of $16,000 a year from his salary to spend it on Raptors games and Raptors paraphernalia. But then he confessed. He said, but I must make a confession. It was like a religious experience he was talking about because he was saying, here's what I devote to this. And then he said, but I always go over that. He said, I always go beyond what I budget because I just can't help but give more to that as well. Then there was another interview, and I'm sure maybe you heard this other interview with the most faithful fan of the Toronto Raptors. The most faithful fan of the Toronto Raptors, he has not missed a single home game for the Raptors in the past 24 years. Do you know what that means? 960 regular season games and 50 playoff games over the past 24 years. And then he says this, I have never been late and I have never left a game early. You know, isn't this beautiful worship? I, I mean, there, there is a way, I mean, there is a way in which he is devoting himself to something where he, he is offering himself so fully to that and he is creating habits in his life that give full devotion to what he honors so significantly. Um, you know, here's what he said. He said, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't womanize, I just raptorize. <laughs> and and so, so through this, this radio program that I was listening to, um, they were pressing in on the question even more, and they said, what makes the difference between a regular sports fan and a super fan? And so at the end, they came up with this answer. The answer was that a superfan has the Raptors as a significant part of their identity. And so here's what that means. When they ask you, who are you? Tell me about yourself. The very first thing that comes to their mind, I'm a Raptors fan. That it, it's just, it just pours out of them. It just, it flows out of them so much because that's what they give their life to. They, they think about it all the time. They're always reading up on the stats. They're tracking with it all the time. When somebody asks you, who are you? Are you a worshiper of the living God? Look at Psalm 115, verse 8, as we read about making gods. This verse has fascinating, fascinated me. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Here, here's what I think that the writer of the Psalms is saying is, you become like the thing you trust in. You are what you worship. Do I really? Do I really become like the thing that I worship? Or do I really, think of this question, 
Do I really become like the thing that I love the most? James Smith wrote a fascinating book with, with this title. The title of his book is, is a powerful one. The title is, You Are What You Love. What if we are defined not by what we know, not by what our head says, but by what we love, by what our desires are? If this is true, then spiritual habits such as singing praise songs and prayer, small group life, solitude and silence, putting on the virtue of love, growing in the fruit of the Spirit, that's how we train ourselves in our lives of worship. Psalm 115 is a chapter that recalibrates our hearts in worship. And that's really what we're doing each week as we meet together, recalibrating our hearts once again. As we worship God, God remakes us and molds us. James Smith, in his little book, You Are What You Love, he says this, Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God is retraining our hearts. Isn't there something powerful here? I play my heart as a worshiper. I enter into the habit of faith, but there is something that God is doing in my heart as I worship. Something that God is doing, reforming me and reshaping me. As we build our lives on Jesus' love, we actually grow in such a way that we shall be like him. You are what you love. But as we worship him, we shall be like him. Now that's glory. Isn't that? I can't get away from that word. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 seems to tie together everything quite well. Let's read this verse together. And we, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here's my great desire today, for you and for me, that we train ourselves. Actually, that we train ourselves in contemplating God's glory and in living for God's glory so that we might actually be transformed in becoming like the one that we love. Amen. Will you pray together with me? Lord, we do realize this, that each one of us is a worshiper here today. We can't not love something. And Lord, we pray that, that you would train us now to set our eyes on you because you are the enduring God. You are the God who does whatever he pleases. You are sovereign in all your ways. You are mysterious. 
Lord, we cannot figure you out all the time, but we do trust you. And we do love you today, and we pray that our love might grow. And Lord, we pray that we might become like the one that we love. So help us to train our love today more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.